Thank you so much, worship team. Thank you, Mark. If you would, turn again to 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. We want to continue looking at this wonderful chapter on love. It's a chapter that we're probably all very familiar with. And yet, if we look at it and say, what a sweet chapter, what a wonderful chapter this is, and yet think that it's an easy chapter. It's uh, something that we can very quickly, easily put into practice in every situation. Uh, It's probably because we haven't really thought deeply about what Paul is actually saying here. And that's what I want us to do, because if you're like me, I desire to be a more loving person than I am, especially in really challenging situations. Um, And so that's my prayer. One of the questions that has come to me as I thought about this chapter is the question, in light of where the Corinthians were, and I think this is the issue that Paul is bringing up for them, is what is your goal in your relationships in the church? Is your goal really to love or is it something else? Because the Corinthians weren't doing a very good job of loving each other. And that's why Paul says what he says. And so we have to ask ourselves in thinking about all of our relationships, uh, is my goal love in this relationship? And I have to ask myself, am I truly loving my family or seeking to love my family? Am I truly seeking to love um, in my work setting or in my neighborhood? Am I truly seeking to love my friends, truly seeking to love my enemies, whoever those might be in whatever way I might feel like they're an enemy? And the ultimate goal of what Paul is going to say here is that all the truth that they've heard as Christians and all the truth that we've heard as Christians is ultimately to move us to love, to love God and to love each other. And if the truth we know doesn't move us to truly love, then there's obviously there's a disconnect somewhere. There's something that awry in how we're looking at the truth and applying that truth in our lives. As I mentioned last week, there's a popular cultural slogan now called Love is Love. I kind of relate that to the idea of pizza is pizza. Um, it's not really a definition of what love is. It's almost a way of saying, let's not define it. Let's not give any boundaries to it because the definition basically puts boundaries around things and says this is what this is and this is what it's not. But to say love is love is almost like saying anything I call love is love. There's no boundary on it. And that's the way people are using it and talking about it in this day and time. But God says that love, the love that he calls us to, is is a very defined thing. It's a very clear thing. So clear that he could say, if you don't love this way, then you aren't my child. And so it's a very uh, definite kind of thing. So let's read again 1 Corinthians 13, these 13 verses, and think about it again today in light of our own relationships. Verse 1, it says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. So we highlighted last week, you can kind of break this chapter up into three sections. The first section is where, in the first three verses, Paul talks about how love is the priority and it's actually essential to anything that truly glorifies God and is truly commendable in life. The next section is about the excellence of love. final section is about the permanence of it. This morning, we're going to start talking about the excellence of love, and Paul pictures for us what love looks like. Now, he's not saying everything in this chapter that could be said about love. There are a lot of things that the Bible says about love that need to be brought in. But what Paul is doing here is, as I said last week, he's not just giving a chapter that you can use at a wedding, even though you can and should, but he's giving a rebuke to the Corinthian church because they're not doing these things. They're not loving. They're elevating spiritual gifts. They're elevating certain men. They're abusing each other by taking each other to court and and uh, eating and hoarding food at the Lord's Supper and doing all kinds of things in which they're not loving each other. And Paul is basically calling them to repentance and calling them to get a fresh vision of what it means to do what Jesus said. Jesus said, this is my commandment, meaning of all the things that I'm calling you to be and do, it's summarized in love one another. And so love is very much what God calls us to and what is so important. It's almost as if Paul is saying in those first verses, he uses the personal uh, pronoun I. If I uh, do these things, but I don't love, then I'm nothing. I am, I can, you know, I, I have nothing to be commended for. He's basically saying, even if someone like me, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in the position that I'm in, even someone commissioned by Jesus to do what he's doing, if I preach without love, if I heal without love, if I do anything without love, God says. There's nothing in that to be commended. No matter who it is, even if you're the Apostle Paul, if what you do isn't um, an expression of the love of God, then it's not something that God looks upon with approval. So Paul is essentially saying, uh, if this is true for me, it's true for everyone else as well. 
It's interesting, Jonathan Edwards, in preaching on this chapter, basically argues that the great duty of Christianity is love. And it's actually what, what the Bible talks about when it says, be holy. That holiness is love. You can't be holy and not be loving, which is different than the way I grew up. Because there were plenty of people that talked about holiness in such a way that really weren't talking about love. They were just talking about not doing certain things and, and staying away from certain people. And they weren't talking about love. And so Jonathan Edwards highlights the fact that love is really what Christianity is about. So today we want to begin looking at the definition of love that we find in Scripture and how Paul describes it here. One of the things that's interesting is that we often say this love is agape love. And it's because the Christians used, obviously by God's direction, the Greek word agape for this Christian love because it was one of those Greek words that was seldom used. And so it was a word that they could use and give it the meaning, um, the content that it needed. And yet so many times we think if I just see the word agape and I see that love, it must mean the love of God and the Christian love. But that's not necessarily true when you look at how it's used. In John 3, for instance, it says, for God so agape the world... Then it goes on to say, and men agape the darkness rather than the light. So you can love the world as God does, or you can be a sinner who loves the darkness. And that same word agape uh, is used. And yet uh, we also talk about it in terms of um, loving the undeserving. And yet it says the father, later on in the chapter, agape is the son. Does a son not deserve the father's love? No, he does. And so it's one of those things where I just bring this up to say, just using the word, we can say, well, um, whatever that word means and however it's used in scripture is, is what it means to have Christian love. It's not exactly true because we might put in there loving the darkness and things like that. So how do we determine what that word is to be filled with? And how are we to understand how it's used? Well, God defines what love is because the Bible says God is love. The cross defines what love is because John could say we know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And the Bible itself, when it commands what it commands, defines love for us. That's why Paul could say in Romans 13, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And so that word agape has to be filled with the content that God gives it in terms of his own character, in terms of what Jesus did on the cross, in terms of what he tells us it looks like to love. But what I've done here in this one sentence here is to try to encapsulate a lot of what the Bible emphasizes with regard to love, um, even though uh, what Paul focuses on in this chapter is more just the description of what it looks like. But we can say Christian love or the love of God is desiring the true good of another and doing good to another, even at great cost, and even without any good reason for it in the one loved, all because of God's love for us in Jesus. And as we go through this, we'll try to talk more and more about what that def definition is really saying. But I'll leave it at that for now. It highlights both the fact that we need... It's something that happens in our hearts 
and in our hands and our mouths and our feet. It's something that um, is very practical, the doing of good. It may cost me greatly or it may not. Uh, it may be a situation where I find no good reason for it or I may, may find some good reason for it. Uh, but ultimately, it's something that's rooted in the fact that God has loved me in Jesus. And therefore, that draws out of me love for him. And that love for God, because of his love for me, is to overflow in love to others. That's the Christian picture of love. And what Paul does in this chapter is give us a practical description of the implications of God loving us, us loving in return, like it says, we love because he first loved us, and the overflow. What is the overflow of God loving me in Christ and me returning that love? What does the overflow of that look like in my relationship with people who aren't perfect? My relationship with people who fail, just like I do. And so, uh, Paul gives us a description in verses 4 through 7 that I'd like to begin looking at. And um, there was something that I found this week that I want to just use to highlight a very important point. There's this discussion going on between a husband and wife where the husband is talking to the wife and says, do you love me? And the wife says, of course I love you. You're the light of my life. And the husband says, would you love me even if I wronged you? She says, I will always love you, my darling. And the husband says, well, but would you love me if... I gambled away all of our savings. The wife says, I would still love you, my precious husband. Uh, The husband says, well, what if I cheated on you? Would you still love me? The wife says, of course, I will always love you. You're the apple of my eye. The husband says, okay, well, in in light of all that, I forgot to turn on the dishwasher last night. And the wife says, I hate you, you lazy, irresponsible husband. Now, that's supposed to be a joke, but there's a point there. What is the point? The point is, it's easy to say, I'll love you if, when it's all theoretical. If I do this, if I do that, it hasn't happened yet, but what about what I have done? I didn't start the dishwasher. Or what if I really do some of these horrible things? It's easy to say, yes, God calls me to love, and to say, theoretically, I'm committed to loving. But what about in reality, when when the rubber meets the road, and someone actually offends you, are you still as committed to loving in those situations? That's why I think people like this French writer that I read about back in the 17th century said this, True love is like ghosts, which everyone talks about and few have seen. True love, rarely seen, rarely seen. And I think he's talking about the fact that it's very easy to sing about love and talk about love all in the theoretical. It's much harder to actually love sinners who sin against us and fail us in real life situations. And that's what Paul is talking about in verses four through seven. He's talking about real life circumstances where he says in verse four, 
Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. So let's start there. Let's start with love is patient. To me, it's fascinating that that's the first thing that he mentions. And it's significant, I think, that he starts there with love is patient. Why is that? Because it's hard to love someone if you've basically kicked them out or walked walked away. I told you the story about this uh, Hebrew um, traditional story about Abraham. You might remember where Abraham's sitting at his tent. It's at the end of the day. This old man comes along. He's tired. He's hungry. Abraham says, come on into my tent and let me feed you and give you a place to stay for the night. And so the old man comes in and uh, Abraham has fixed this meal for him and they're about to eat. And the old man just begins eating without praying. And Abraham says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I noticed you didn't pray. Do you not worship God? The old man says, the only thing I worship is fire. And immediately Abraham grabs the man and throws him out of the tent. And the old man goes on his way. Well, not long after that, God comes in the story. God comes to Abraham and says, where's that old man that that you welcomed into your tent a little while ago? He said, oh, I forced him out because he did not worship you. And the response, according to the story, is God says, I have suffered him. I have suffered him these 80 years, although he dishonors me. Could you not endure him one night? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the issue of patience. Suffering someone's dishonor by continuing to do them good and not just kicking them out of the tent. The word for patient means uh, long suffering. Suffered him 80 years and you couldn't suffer him one night. It's the idea of forbearance. It's the idea of uh, putting up with a lot. Jonathan Edwards says it's, it means to bear ill received from others. Uh, Matthew Henry talks about it in terms of enduring evil and provocation, putting up with many slights, and yet waiting long to see if maybe things will change. And so, in a sense, it's the idea of refraining from actually giving people what they deserve. Did that man, that old man, deserve to be kicked out of the tent? In a sense, yes. I mean, God could have kicked him out of the tent, so to speak, many, many years before, but he didn't. There was patience exercise. So the point, I believe, of the idea of patience here is to don't give people what they deserve for their sin and failure. Don't give people what they deserve for their sin and failure. Uh, I think Matthew 18, you might remember the story where this man owes this king an amount of money he could never repay. And so the man comes, well, he's actually brought before the king. The king wants to settle the accounts and this man can't repay. And so what this man says is, he says, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now, obviously, he was um, being um, delusional at best because there was no way he could ever repay the debt that he owed. 
but he requests patience. And the king says, okay, I won't sell you and your family and your possessions to repay this debt. I won't give you what you deserve. In fact, in fact, goes beyond that and basically just forgives the debt. And yet the man, after experiencing that patience and that kindness, goes right out, finds his own fellow slave who owed him much less than he owed the king, yet it wasn't an insignificant amount, and grabs him by the neck and says, pay what you owe. And his friend says the same thing that this other man had said to the king, have patience with me. And he throws him in jail, refusing to be patient, refusing to give him time uh, to do what he needed to do, but decides to immediately bring consequences, to immediately punish him for his failure. And so what we see there is a picture of the patience that is being talked about here in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, when we're talking about this and we're applying it to our relationships, this doesn't mean you can't prosecute criminals. This doesn't mean you can't fire bad employees. It doesn't mean that, but we're talking about on a personal level in terms of how we're dealing with people in our personal relationships. That's what Paul is talking about here because God calls us to be like him. So the question is, how does God call us to be like him? Well, God is love, as it says in 1 John, which means God is patient. How is God patient? There's a scripture in Jeremiah 7 where it says in verse 25, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. Do you really think, ever think about what's being said there? God is saying, since the day I brought the children of Israel out of Egypt for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, I've told them what I call them to do, how to trust me, how to love, what my law is, uh, what my promises are to them. And all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they've never done it. They've never listened to me. They just stiffened their neck and said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to love like you call me to or anything like that. And yet, what did God do? He worked miracles in getting them out of Egypt. He fed them in the manna in the wilderness. He led them uh, by um, cloud by day and fire by night. He brought them into the land of promise and overcame their enemies. He just blessed them, blessed them, blessed them, provided for them, provided for them, provided for them. And he didn't simply do what he could have done. He could have just kicked them out of the tent. He could have just brought consequences immediately. He could have cut them off right away. But for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, he showed patience. Even refers to that same kind of thing in First Peter when Peter is talking about the days of Noah and the flood. He says, uh, talking about the people there who were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. 
So uh, people are in rebellion against God. God comes to Noah and says, I want you to build this boat. And it appears he worked on it for about 100 years or so. God is waiting, being patient, still being patient, uh, not bringing judgment. He does bring judgment at a point, but he shows incredible patience, which highlights the fact that one question we might ask is, can we ever walk away from a relationship? Can we ever stop being patient? Well, there's no doubt that God judged through the flood And yet he was patient up to that point. He sent Judah into exile as well as the northern kingdom. But he was very, very patient up to that point. The Bible talks about the fact that Jesus told his disciples to preach the gospel. And if they reject it, you can dust off your feet and move on. Um, So there are different instances in in which the Bible highlights the fact that, yes, patience can come to an end. It can, but it should be in a sense, especially for us, in terms of what God calls us to, the exception rather than the rule. Whereas for us as sinners, it tends to be the rule rather than the the exception. And that's the difference, that there might be good reasons in certain situations that uh, we don't continue to exercise patience in a certain way. But many times we're like Abraham in the story. We're just kicking people out of our tent left and right you know, because they're not what we want them to be, they're not doing what we want them to do, and therefore we're not being very patient at all. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we quick to just be fed up with people? Are we just quick to be done? Or are we quick to wait, quick to hang in there, quick to persevere? That's what Paul is talking about. He's encouraging the Corinthian believers to stop kicking each other out of the tent and to be patient with one another in light of their failure, in light of their sin, because all of us have our failures and our sins. Well, he moves on from there to talk about the fact in verse 4 that love is not only patient, but love is kind. You can actually look at patience and kindness as two sides of the same coin. That patience provides the anchor for and the platform for kindness. If you remove patience, then you don't have a platform to be kind because you just kicked the guy out of your tent. But if you're patient with that guy in your tent, then it provides you the platform for showing him kindness. You see, Abraham's kindness ended when he kicked him out of the tent. If he was more patient, he would have been able to show him more kindness. Um, It's interesting, uh, I may have mentioned this illustration before too, but Lincoln had a guy in his administration, uh, Edwin Stanton, um, who had incredible contempt for Abraham Lincoln. He uh, denounced his policies, he called him a, a cunning clown, even called him the original gorilla. He just tried to embarrass Abraham Lincoln, make a fool of him and oppose him in every way he could. And yet when the time came, Abraham Lincoln actually appointed him to be his minister of war because he was the best man for the job. 
and he showed him every courtesy. And with Abraham, when Abraham Lincoln was shot, uh, Edward, Edwin Stanton looked at him lying there and he said, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. And so Lincoln was incredibly kind to Edwin Stanton. His patience with him provided the platform for that. He didn't, didn't kick, him out, kick him out of his administration he let him be a part of that, and he actually appointed him to very significant roles. The word for kind means to be kind, but it also means to be merciful, which is interesting because the idea of mercy is the idea of not giving people what they deserve, which means inherent in our doing good to other people is not giving them what they deserve, but showing them grace being kind to them in spite of the fact that they don't don't deserve it. Because how do we often reason? Well, I don't think they deserve that. Well, that's the whole basis for kindness is being merciful, not giving them what they deserve, but doing good to others anyway. And that's why Jonathan Edwards talks about this being free to do good to others or freely doing good to others. Matthew Henry talks about it in terms of seeking to be useful. This kindness not only seizes on opportunities of doing good, but searches for them. We don't only uh, do good to people if it happens to be an opportunity, but we actually look for that opportunity. And that's very challenging, especially when you think about those that we consider our enemies or those we don't really want to do anything good toward. Very, very challenging. And so it's, a very, it's very much about treating others as you would have them to treat you. We can see that reflected in Luke 6, verse 27. Uh, the Lord Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. How? Do good to those who who hate you, those who aren't doing you good, those who are failing you, sinning against you. And that's why he says, treat others, later on in that same passage, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Apply the golden rule. How would you want to be treated? How would you want to be shown mercy? How would you want people to be gracious to you? He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? He says, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. That's how we often operate is, what am I getting back from this person? What am I getting out of this relationship? If it's not what I want or what I think I deserve, then do I just kind of shut down? Or if I, do I just walk away? Do I say, well, I'm not going to give if they're not giving back? And that's what we're actually being challenged to do because he says, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Don't give people what they deserve. Give them what they don't deserve. Be kind to them. 
And so he's calling us to love like God loves again. He's, he's not saying do something God doesn't do. He's saying do what God does. God is patient. God is kind. Uh, if you read Psalm 78, it's a very interesting chapter because in Psalm 78, what the psalmist does there is he talks about the Israelites being a, a stubborn and rebellious generation. And yet he talks about all the wonders that God did for them. He talks about how he led them by or with the cloud by day and all the night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. But it says, yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the most high in the desert. So God is continually providing for the Israelites in the wilderness doing miracles to feed them and to care for them. And they're, he's continuing to do them good and they're continuing to rebel against him. So they're both being consistent. God's being consistently kind and they're being consistently rebellious. He goes on to say, they did not believe in God, the psalmist says, yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. He sent them food in abundance. He rained meat upon them. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. It's an amazing chapter, Psalm 78, talking about God's kindness to ungrateful and evil men. Exactly what Luke is talking about in Luke 6. It says in Psalm 145, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Romans 2 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Tolerance and patience is necessary for kindness, putting those two things together. And it's the kindness of God is continuing to do us good even when we're sinning against him. That is meant to lead us to repentance. And so, God is patient and he calls us to be patient, to be long-suffering. God is kind and he calls us to be kind as well. Um, patience and kindness go together, as I said. That's why in First Thessalonians it says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. So regardless of what... Uh, state a person's in, uh, what their sin is, what their struggle is, what their condition is. The common thread through all of our relationships should be patience with people in those relationships. And the other common thread is kindness. Uh, it says in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So why would Paul link kindness and forgiveness? you have to be merciful not giving people what they deserve the word for forgive means i release you from what you owe me so i can do you good that's kindness be kind be kind like god calls us to be kind so patience is like the platform on which kindness operates. Kindness is like the shovel, shovel that goes to work uh, to do good for those around us. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, on the one hand, are we, are we like Abraham, who's kicking people out of the tent? On the other hand, are we like Lincoln, who's appointing to this high cabinet position a man who calls him the original gorilla? And in what ways do we need to ask God to help us to be different? Are, are we reluctant to do good to those who aren't doing good to us? Or are we ready to do good to those who aren't doing good to us? That's why I said at the beginning, if you really think through what Paul is saying here, he's not talking about things that come naturally. He's not talking about things that come easily. He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about a supernatural kind of love that goes beyond what would simply happen um, in our lives. Well, he goes on to say that love is patient, love is kind, and love is not jealous. It's not surprising that Paul would talk about patience and kindness because we've talked about how those things work together. But why jealous? Why does he talk about jealousy at this point? Well, one reason might be is that jealousy is very much about the idea of wanting my own happiness and not being hap- not really pursuing the happiness of others, which is actually is essential to being kind. In order to love people and to be kind to people, you have to really want them to be happy. You have to really want to do them good. There's a story about um, two shopkeepers who are across the street from each other, and they hated each other. And they didn't want each other to be successful. And so if a shopkeeper had a customer come in, he'd look over at the other shopkeeper and just gloat. You know, if he was doing well, he'd look over at the other one and gloat. And it went back and forth. And according to the story, there was an angel that appeared to one of the shopkeepers in, in a dream and said, I will give you anything you ask, but whatever you receive, your competitor, the shopkeeper across the street, will receive twice as much. Would you be rich? You can be very rich, but he will be twice as wealthy. Do you wish to live a long and healthy life? You can, but his life will be longer and healthier. What is your desire? He thought about it, actually frowned and was kind of frustrated with the question, and then he got a revelation. And he said, okay, here's my request. Strike me blind in one eye. Which meant so that that guy cannot see at all. Kind of a way of talking about blinding jealousy. It's the idea that I want so much what someone else has and I don't want them to have it that I'm even willing to hurt myself in order to hurt them. And that's what jealousy does. And so it's all about the idea of having, the word for jealous is like a a passionate commitment, a a zeal or enthusiasm that strives after something. The word sometimes can be used, many times can be used in a positive context. Here it's in a negative context, so it's talking about jealousy and envy, Jealousy tends to be what I want for myself. Envy tends to be what I don't want for others, that kind of thing. But it tends to be both sides of that coin. That's why Edwards could say it's the opposite of a spirit of desiring the happiness of others. 
but only wanting it for yourself. Uh, Matthew Henry could say, it's the idea of being grieved at the good that others enjoy. It's actually ill will toward others. He says, the mind which is bent on doing good to all can never wish ill to any. And so on the one hand, it's wanting um, for yourself what other people have. And at the same time, it can be not wanting someone else to be happy or to have what they have. And that's why I would say the idea here is to be unhappy that others have what you don't. And he's basically saying, don't be unhappy that others have what you don't have. It's kind of like Rachel in the Old Testament. She looked at uh, Leah and Leah was having babies and Rachel wasn't. So it says when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. You can also see jealousy in... um, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Uh, the brothers, it says in Acts 7, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. They were jealous of what Joseph had, which was the favor of his father. And so they took it away from him by sending him into Egypt. Well, one question is, how, do, how does this relate to God? If somehow this is an idea that were to reflect the love of God, how does God not be jealous? What does that mean? Well, I think the idea of whether or not I really want the happiness of others, or if I want my own private happiness, one way or the other, is very much at the heart of this. In John 15, the Lord Jesus talks about the fact that he's the the vine and we're the branches. And he says something at the end of that passage that's interesting. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Obviously, there is nothing God needs from us to be happy. So it's not like God's going to take something from us and be happy by doing so. Because... Everything we have, he's given it to us, and he's perfectly happy in himself. So it's not exactly like our situation. But it is like our situation in the sense that it all comes down to, do I not want the happiness of those around me? To the degree that I'm willing to take it from them if I have to, in order to be happy myself. Do I really care about the happiness of those around me? Around me, do I care about the happiness of those who hate me, that do me wrong? That's the real issue of where the rubber meets the road, that don't love me like they should. God does not want to take away our happiness, but he wants us to have his own joy and happiness. I think that's the link between God's love and our love. Is that Jesus says, I've told you what I've told you, that you might have my happiness. And that's the spirit of not being jealous and loving, is that I really want the happiness of others, regardless of whether they want my happiness. Whether or not, regardless of whether they're pursuing my happiness. And so jealousy becomes a thief. 
Uh, it becomes the thief that says, I want what you have so I can be happy and I don't care whether you're happy or not. And so the question is, am I like the shop owner who would be glad to lose an eye if it meant that his rival wouldn't enjoy sight at all? That in some sense, he would be happy, but the other guy wouldn't be. The question is, do I resent the happiness of others because of what they have that I don't have? Or do I rejoice in the happiness of others even if I don't have what they have? That's a very um, convicting question. When you think about others and you think about what they have and the happiness that God has blessed them with, do you ever think, wow, I wish I had what they had? Or do I even go to the point of wishing that I actually could take away what they have? Do I resent the fact that they, in some sense, have what I don't have, whether it's people in their lives, possessions, positions of authority or whatever it might be, or even experiences. Well, that person gets to do those things, gets to enjoy those things. I don't get to. I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that even if I had to take it away from that person. It's a very exposing thing when you think about that. And the reality is, the way to fight that is to find our happiness in God so that we don't think that our happiness is found in anything in this world. Well, he goes on from there to talk about um, not bragging and not being arrogant, but we're kind of running out of time here, so I'm going to leave that for next week because I want to talk about what is very important as we wrap up here. And that's the question of, as I think about the questions with regard to patience and kindness and jealousy, I need to think about it in terms of my own marriage, my own family, my own parenting, my own parents, my own siblings, my own friends, my own co-workers, uh, my fellow church members, um, other believers outside this church, other you know people that aren't believers, uh, people I would consider friends, people I would not consider friends. I need to think about all these things these relationships in light of these questions and ask the question, what do I do if I'm not loving like this in any of these relationships? What do I do? What is the response supposed to be to the exposure of my failure to one degree or another in various relationships to love with patience and kindness and, and not have uh, the jealousy that Paul is talking about here. And we just have to remember that it all comes down to faith. At the end of the chapter, he says, what remains is faith, hope, and love. And when we get there, we'll talk about the fact that the key to the love he's talking about is faith. Because he says in another place, in Galatians 5, what, what matters is faith working through love, which means the way that I fight to be more loving is to increase my faith. The reason why I'm not loving as I should be is because I'm not believing what I should believe. The reason why I'm not being patient is because I'm not seeing God as patient as I should. The reason I'm not being kind is because I'm not believing that God is kind as I should believe. The reason I'm being jealous is because I'm not trusting God for the happiness that I should be trusting Him for. It's all rooted in my faith about God, about life, about what Christ has promised and done for me. And so it all starts with 
resting in Jesus. Whenever I'm convicted of not being what God calls me to be, I have to go there first. And remember that Jesus lived a life of perfect love, and then he died on the cross for our lack of love for God and people. And therefore, I trust him with, a, with my great failure to love. That's where it all starts. I have to rest in Jesus, his life, his death, his re- resurrection on behalf of sinners. That's why Paul could say, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So on the one hand, one hand Paul could say, let all that you do be done in love. He could also say, the life that I live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live resting in Jesus and what he did for me so that I'm not condemned when I read the fact and realize the fact that I'm not as patient as I should be. I'm not patient like God is. I'm not kind like God is. I am jealous. I do wish I had what other people have. I might even wish that other people weren't as happy as they are. And I see that. I confess it. And I rest in Jesus and know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I move on from there and I also put my hope in God to believe that he loves me perfectly. I don't need everyone else's love. I may want it, and we all do, but the only love I need is God's love. That is the only love we need. We're in real big trouble if we don't have that love. But if we have his love, then we're good. And that's why in 1 John 4 it says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. And then he goes on to say, we love because he first loved us. What is John saying? He's saying, we love not because we're being loved, Not because we're great people and can do it on our own. We love because God has loved us. It's his love that makes the difference. my, My hope is not in whether or not people love me. My hope is in the love of God for me and all that he's promised to those he says he loves. That's where our hope is. So our resting in Jesus and our hoping in God to love us perfectly forever It's actually meant to free us to do the last thing, which is pursue. Pursue being more patient. Pursue being more kind. Pursue not being jealous. That's why it says in 2 John, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. So in one sense, in order to love, I have to rest in what Jesus did for me. In another sense, I, I need to put my hope in God loving me perfectly. But in another sense, I need to get practical and I need to do what God tells me is the loving thing to do. What has he commanded me to do? And then I am to pursue that, resting in Jesus and hoping in God. That's how we respond to a chapter that if we really understand it is incredibly devastating for us before a holy God because it exposes how much we need a savior. And it exposes how unloving we really are and how far we have to go to really be like Christ. But the good news 
that should cause us to rejoice and to walk out of here not feeling condemned, but feeling hopeful and happy is that Jesus has loved perfectly and died in our place. And he's given us the Holy Spirit who says, I'm going to enable you to do what you cannot do on your own. It's a process. It's going to take time. And one day I'm going to fulfill that promise. So it's a hopeful thing. And so my encouragement for us this morning is think really hard about what Paul is really telling us about what love really looks like and connect it with the God that we worship and connect it to the cross and connect it to the Bible and ask God to help you, to help me to grow to grow in our resting in Jesus for our failure to love, to grow in our hope in God for perfect love and not hope in people around us, and to grow in actually doing what the Bible tells us to do in all of our relationships. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you you give it to us because you love us and because you want us to enjoy your love and you want us to overflow in love to others. I just thank you so much that it's your heart of love that is ultimately behind, under, in, and over this chapter. And I pray on the one hand that we would be convicted where we're not loving as we should be, because we're not. But I pray that we would be encouraged to know that because of Jesus, there's no condemnation. but There's also no complacency to to stay where we are. And that there's hope to grow, to be enabled by your spirit, to be more loving in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our world. And I pray that that would happen in my heart and life, in our hearts and lives, for the glory of your name, because you alone deserve the glory, and for the exaltation of Jesus because it's only because of him that we could ever hope to know your love and to love like you love. Please encourage our hearts and grow us in this, I pray. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.